Hi, everyone, and welcome to another Firms Consulting Podcast. Since we've launched the uh, Corporate Strategy Training, which you can find under the menu Strategy Training Technology Corporate Strategy, and since we've also launched the live blogging of the Financial Services Study, many of the podcasts over the next few days and months are going to be about how you actually do high-end corporate strategy for CEOs and board members and so on, right? So today's podcast is a summary of what has happened in the first week of the um, study to help a very substantial a Fortune 1000 financial services enterprise uh, think through the plan and the intention to enter the U.S. retail banking market to primarily offer funding to immigrants, particularly around opening new businesses in the United States. Right. So it's been a very interesting project. If you've been following the live blog, you know that the strategy we put in place here was to start very, very fast. Um, for those of you who have been following the blog, you know I refer to that as the Ranatunga strategy, which is named after the 1996 uh, Sri Lankan cricket team, which is you know, it's regarded as one of the greatest feats of sports in the way they played, which is to come up which is to start a game very aggressively and very fast. You don't wait for a build-up. And that's pretty much the strategy we've been following. You know, we, we came in with a lot of preparation. We spent the week before the study began, uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, working with the team, training them on the basics, training them how to do cases, training them how to write storyboards, training them how to do analysis. You know, the, very, the most important part we were training them, actually, is how they move from a key question in a study. So what is the overall objective of the study? And then from there, how do we move to breaking out the issues, breaking out the decision tree, prioritizing the branches in the decision tree, and so on. And to see that process, if you want to know how to learn that process, if you go to the technology corporate strategy and you look at steps one, steps two, steps three, those three steps talk in detail about how we did this. And even though it's called technology corporate strategy, they are using all of this material as preparation and as learning material on the study, right? So it's completely relevant to any strategy study. So this is where we lie. The first week has been more or less done. It's now Friday morning and the team's in New Mexico, probably eating very spicy food and following around a distribution financial intermediary who is showing them how that institution goes about taking money from lab, our client, and distributing it through to immigrants in the United States, close to the border town. I think it's called Columbus, New Mexico. Now, the plan was a rapid build-up, and we focused on a few things for this week. The first thing was to complete all of the planning documents, right? Remember all those issue maps, charters, timelines, storyboards, and we did that. So the team spent actually Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and a little bit of Monday finishing all those crucial documents. And remember, I need to see those documents so that I can know that what the team plans to do makes sense. It's a little bit like an architect, right? When you go to see, when you're building a home for a client, you don't just tell the client, well, I'm going to build you the most beautiful Spanish villa and trust me. No, the client's not going to trust you. The client wants to see a a version of what you want to produce without producing it. So this is important. The analogy makes a lot of sense. 
they don't want the architect to build a house and you know a version of the house no they want them to design the house which is the same thing in consulting a lot of young consultants will say well let me do an example of what i want to do and then you can tell me it makes sense but doing an example is a waste of time so i'm not looking for an example i'm looking for almost the blueprints of what you're going to do and the blueprints are basically a few documents it's the decision tree the prioritized branches the analyses so the hypotheses from the prioritized branches the analyses for the hypotheses the work plan for the analyses the charter which is your contract with me the project logic your timeline your expectations exchange and then finally the storyboard those are the documents i want and on monday i received all of that from the team i was quite happy with the direction they were taking and i said fine you may proceed right so we actually started off very well and because we had spent most of Friday with Guillermo, we attended the training and he was he had a very nice discussion talking to the team on some of the issues and so on. Uh, because we started so strongly, we began the focus interviews on Monday. And we started the focus interviews pretty rapidly, right? We had five on Monday, five on Tuesday, five on Wednesday, five on Thursday. Monday and Tuesday, I attended quite a lot of focus interviews, actually. I attended about six, I think. And I had Nimisha and Peter attend uh, four and I attended six with uh, with uh, Albert and the thinking there was that um, I wanted to show people how the focus interviews were done and you notice by Wednesday and Thursday I wasn't involved in many focus interviews because I think the team had learned how to do this and we we're doing a good job so the focus interviews began rapidly now remember why we do the focus interviews we do the focus interviews for a number of reasons and this is again extensively covered in the corporate strategy training um, on the technology side, I, I'm for technology companies. It's not a technology corporate strategy. It's a, it's a corporate strategy for technology company like Microsoft, like Facebook, like Google, like Accenture, and so on. Right. So don't think that you should only watch that if you're interested in technology. It's, the technology component is irrelevant there. Now, why do we do a focus interview? We do focus interviews for a couple of reasons. Firstly, by talking to the employees, we build a relationship with them. First reason. The second one is it's a very safe environment for the young interns to talk to the client, but where the client is doing most of the talking. So it's almost a, it's almost a very safe onboarding into the client environment. The third reason is that it, it's helping us give us clues and pointers about where the problems may lie. And of course, we've got some initial hypotheses, which the focus interviewers can point out may be worth examining further, or they could point out why the hypothesis is not worth examining for, further. So that's the third reason. The fourth reason is because the focus interviews presents material for us that we can present to the client which can be undisputed. When we do analysis, there's always a chance the client may dispute the analysis. But when the focus interviews is feedback from their own employees, it's pretty difficult to dispute that. So basically, we are presenting evidence that can be undisputed. It, it, it's a credibility builder for us. And the fifth reason is by showing we have a relationship with employees and also we're meeting stakeholders in the value chain who are not employees of lab but other companies they work with we are showing the ceo that we have relationships they don't necessarily have and because we have those relationships at least the client thinks that they want to continue with working with us to extract the information we can get from those relationships now this is explained in a lot more detail in the videos under uh, uh, technology corporate strategy i suggest you watch them so the focus interviews have started very well We've done about 22 of them, I think. And, you know, a lot of our initial hypotheses have been proven out to be true. 
uh, at least so far. We still have to test them further. Some have been turned out to be not true. For example, the credit guarantees, we thought they'd be a massive program and they'd be doing very well, but, but they haven't turned out to be true. And, and we've been spending a lot of time figuring out why that is the case. And eventually we figured out why it's the case. It's because the internal credit analysis team from lab is not allowing many of these credit guarantees whereby retail banks lend to, un to entrepreneurs but lab guarantees the default should it occur. So the, the retail banks uh, lose nothing. The internal credit analysis team from lab is not allowing those to go ahead because they feel that the retail banks are not doing a good job of checking the risk profile of the people to whom they are lending. And they're basically just lending to anyone knowing that if it's default, if, if the loan defaults, they're going to get paid anyway, right? Because lab, because lab is backing it. So that is a bit unusual. But linked to that, so we finished the focus interviews. We've had a lot of discussions with the executives in Galadmo who I now believe have started to see the problem the way we do it. You know, for a lot of people, when we came in, it was just another analysis that would quickly show that lab was fine, entering the U.S. was fine. But we've focused the analysis on, look, we're going to tell you whether entering the U.S. market is fine, is the right way to go or not. And if it's not the right way to go, what are your options to meet your mandate? Irrespective of the work you're already doing to enter the market, it's not going to influence us. Fine, if we turn out to be, if, if our work supports the fact you can enter the U.S. market, we'll tell you how to do it, and that will just piggyback into what Bain and the internal strategy group is doing. But if it turns out to be wrong, then at least you have this document that will prevent you from making a pretty bad mistake. So initially, there was a lot of skepticism about what we were doing, and really only we had the support of the CEO, some of the board members, and Galermo. But I think now we have a lot more support in the organization because I've been meeting many executives, showing them our thinking our analysis and why we're doing it, and they like what we are doing. They really liked the top-down financial analysis because we had vetted the numbers and I could talk people through the initial findings. I didn't go into it in a lot of detail because I didn't want uh, uh, anyone to see it before Guillermo had had a big chance to get into it. But I talked them through what we expect, what, what were our hypotheses. So I worried it as an hypothesis. This is what we expect and this is why, even though I know that the, the hypothesis would turn out to be true. So that's one way of, you know, if you want to know how to communicate to a client without giving away a secret before you've prepped the main client, word it as an hypothesis and tell them you're still to test the hypothesis. That's where they, that way they know what to expect, but you're not upsetting the overall client anyway, right? So as you know, we went in to test a few things and our hypothesis turned out to be a bit scary in terms of what we found, right? So for one thing, we found out that a lab has a number of channels through which it engages entre immigrant entrepreneurs in the U.S. and Mexico, right? Well, they're not immigrant entrepreneurs in, in Mexico. They're entrepreneurs in Mexico about to be immigrant when they cross the border, right? It, primary, primary retail channels would be the uh, distribution financial intermediaries. These are privately held businesses in the United States who borrow from lab to fund immigrant entrepreneurs in the United States. Lab also works through retail banks in, in, in the Mexican border areas and the U.S. border areas, whereby these banks offer loans to immigrant entrepreneurs, and then Lab will guarantee an 80% of the face value of the loan should it default. So, that, so if, if an immigrant entrepreneur takes, out, takes a loan for $100, 
and the total cost of the loan plus provisioning the loan is $125 and the loan defaults without any payments, LAB will, will, will give the bank back 80% of $125. Now what we're finding here is that it's costing LAB roughly for each job created through the distribution financial intermediaries, the private businesses borrowing from LAB in the United States. It's costing roughly $642 to create a job. On the other hand, the credit guarantees, which is the retail banks having LAB back the loans offered to entrepreneurs, it's costing $33,000 to create one job. I mean, that is crazy, right? So that for us was a little bit of a shock to the system. Now, LAB has other mechanisms to lend to, to offer entrepreneurs uh, funding, but the two main channels are the, are the retail channels of the distribution financial intermediaries and credit guarantees to retail banks. That's why I'm focused on that. Other channels include lending to very tiny micro, uh, uh, micro credit outlets, things like a payday loan center. Sometimes LAB would back them, but they're not a major source of, um, of disbursements for funds. Other things LAB will do is take an equity investment in a medium-sized immigrant uh, business. Again, not a big part of their business. And the value of the disbursement to create one job there is about $50,000. So it's not the most efficient way of doing this, right? Now, in, in, First, we looked at the top-down analysis, looked at the number of jobs, uh, the, the cost to create one job. The other thing we looked at is the number of jobs created. And the distribution financial intermediaries cre are creating 81% of all jobs created by lab in the last three years. And obviously, everyone else is creating a lot less. The credit guarantees, which is really a big focus here, is only creating about 9% of jobs, 10,000 jobs. So lab isn't doing so well, right? Uh, so it's my mistake, it's not over the last three years, that's the jobs created just last year. So lab is not doing so well in job creation. Now the thing that really shocked us when we did the analysis is that credit guarantees are seeing no growth. And it's seeing no growth because the internal lab credit assessment team is, is not allowing growth to occur by squeezing the, re, the, the, the repayments on default loans because they don't believe that those loans going out to immigrant entrepreneurs from retail banks have been carefully vetted. So no growth. And I think that's a good decision from the internal credit team because credit guarantees, once we finish the analysis, almost certain to destroy capital. But I think the way they're doing it is not conducive to a long-term partnership because you need to have a model where the banks understand that if you're offering them a product, you want them to sell it. So don't offer them a product that's flawed push them to sell and have another division of lab stop them from selling it. That's not good business practice. The best thing to do is to restructure credit guarantees. And I, and I think that's going to be a big recommendation of the study if we figure out that credit guarantees has room for growth, right? The other thing we've realized is that what's happened is that lab two years ago went through this massive effort to disperse a lot of their funds. And they actually ended up dispersing 83% of all funds they had was dispensed via loans to immigrant entrepreneurs. Now, what LAB is saying is that they made a big push to work with the DFIs and the retail banks two years ago. That's why they were so successful. And therefore, if they have their own retail structure, they can push out even more loans. But I think the thing that they're missing is that you've pushed out 83% of your loan book, of your fund book, which is now your loan, right? 83% of, of the funds you have on hand becomes 100% of your loan book, sorry. What is the default rate on that? It's happened just two years ago, so we're still going to see the impact. We're only now seeing what the default rate on that will be. So while they were very successful pushing out the loans, I'm not sure what the quality of those loans are.
And then, because they were so successful pushing out those loans, of which we don't know the quality yet of the loan book, they went ahead and raised a lot of capital from the government and the private investor, and their disbursements now have moved from 83% of funds dispersed to 59% of funds dispersed. And the government has come back to them and said, well, you wanted the money. And their private investor, which is a very large U.S. fund, has come back to them and said, well, you wanted the money. What are you going to do with it? So that's why Lab is pushing to take control of the retail branches as well. They think they did well, and they dispersed 83% of their funds two years ago. And they're wondering why they can't get out past the 59% mark today. But that said, it didn't take us a lot of time to figure out that the return on the fund is actually below inflation. Now, um, we use a different inflation indicator here. If you look at the inflation for immigrants on the border areas of the United States and Mexico, the U.S. inflation rate is probably about 1, maybe 1.5%. Mexico is probably 3, 3.5%. We don't use those inflation numbers. We adjust it for the basket of goods that the immigrants are bound to spend money on. That's a very important factor. So we don't take the, the national inflation. We work out a regional inflation rate. And the regional inflation rate for immigrants in the United States sits around 8%, actually. It's not the 3 or 1% that you'd expect near the border, both sides. So we work on the 8% inflation because that is the cost that they will bear. It's not the average. They're not going to spend the cost of what they're going to incur. is not going to be the average that people in you know, Connecticut and so on are experiencing. It's recalculate a new inflation rate based on the areas or the items they will spend money on, and the inflation for those items is actually a lot higher. So the bottom line here is that um, Lab is not earning the inflation target, which is we've set at 8%, which people say, but that's very high. That's not the real Mexican inflation rate, but it actually is, if you think about it. We do believe the Mexican government underreports inflation, like most emerging markets, uh, for whatever reasons, and the inflation rate is a lot higher than we think it is. So it's set at 8%. You could argue it could be even 6%, and we're okay. We will take that and say it could be 6%. But either way, the funds that Lab has dispersed into the market over, say, the last five years have never exceeded a 4.1% or 4.2% return on, on, on the fund. So what that means is that the fund is not earning inflation. I mean, it, it, basically, the fund is, is losing value in the long term. And that's a worrying sign, right? Because although you, you wouldn't want to create too much you know, money of immigrant entrepreneurs, you want to at least earn your, the inflation number so you can have a, an economic break-even. But they're not doing that, right? Beyond that, we've also worked out that if you work out how much value is destroyed between which is the difference between the fund's rate of return and inflation, which is roughly 2% difference, it works out into a negative rate of return of $123 million that, that will be destroyed in the next three years if they continue at the rate they're doing now. So if the fund performs as it's been doing now with the same rate of growth of the products in the market, same disbursement and so on, they're going to destroy $123 million, which is a significant amount of money, and I don't think anyone wants to do that, right? So th those are the sobering findings we've developed from just doing a very basic 24-hour top-down analysis, right? And it's pointing us in the direction that maybe lab is not doing as well as they think they are, 
And if they're not doing as well as they think they are, what are they planning to expand? Because if you think about it, if they're entering the US market, they're planning to expand. They're trying to expand something. So logic would dictate that plan to expand their current core businesses across the United States, right? But if the current core businesses are unprofitable, they're basically making themselves bigger, which means they're exposing themselves to even more liability and more losses. And that's the thing we're trying to understand here. They want to enter the U.S. market, but even before we think about whether the U.S. market is large enough and viable, there's another question that's now arisen, which is what will that take to the U.S. market and is it worth taking to the U.S. market? Once we answer that question, then we can say, okay, you have a good product, which is worth scaling. Now let's look at whether the U.S. market is attractive. So you notice that the, 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 the focus of the study has changed a little bit through the analysis. And that's a good strategy, right? You do some analysis and you, and you pick out a deeper question that needs to be answered. Now, a bad strategy consultant would just go ahead and beaver away and size the market in the U.S., the, the key success factors. But there's a deeper question here. Lab may not be as wholesome in its performance as pointed out to shareholders in annual reports. And we need to see if that is true. And if it is true, what bearing does it have on entering the U.S. market, right? So that's the top-down financial analysis. Then the other thing we've been doing is we've been working with firms consulting clients across the United States to interview uh, immigrant entrepreneurs, take photos of their businesses, find out how they spend their days. So we're doing time, time studies, how they spend each hour of each day, how much time is spent on value-adding activities, how much time is spent on non-value-adding activities. And at this stage, we've probably done about 50 of those things. And what we're trying to figure out here is what we're doing two, we're breaking it into two parts. We're asking the immigrant entrepreneurs, what do they want? But we also know clients sometimes don't know what they want. So we're watching how they spend the day. And based on the way they spend the day, we will see whether there's any solutions that lab could offer them to make their lives easier, which would, could become, if we decide lab should enter the US market, a value proposition that lab could offer immigrant entrepreneurs to expand their market share in the United States. Right? So always remember that if you ask clients what they want, they are maybe not educated enough to tell you that. So don't rely on that. You need to collect data, which allows you to view what they're doing so that you can draw your own conclusions. That's very important, right? And the way we're doing that is to see how they spend their time, to see what amount is spent on managing their business and what amount is spent on non-value activities. Like, for example, maybe walking out to do banking. Maybe they have to walk very far. Maybe the cost is too high. And we can then think of ideas there. So that's going well. We missed about 50. We want to do about 100 of the shadow studies so we can have a fairly meaningful database to compare trends and patterns. It's not meant to be exhaustive, but it will give us a pretty good indicator of things. And then finally, we're doing the focus, uh, sorry, the case studies, right? So I've had Nimisha and Pete uh, go through and do desktop analysis of some of the most famous and least known um, microfinance uh, initiatives around the world, which they've now finished, more or less. I spent yesterday reviewing their work, and based on the desktop analysis, I've highlighted about six or seven cases we're in a examine in more detail. And I think this is a key thing about the way we work. A lot of companies, a lot of consulting firms would, would do a detailed desktop analysis and call it case studies. And that's actually extremely, extremely lazy and bad practice. We split our focus into, uh, we split our case studies into two steps. One is the desktop research, which we'll do in a fairly large amount of detail, but it's basically literature reviews, right? It's media release reviews. It's reading our newspaper articles. And there's one thing I've learned in my career in management consulting is people lie. People are too lazy to check things. 
and people really don't care as much as getting a story out and they'll do whatever they can to get a story out. So if, if a few people write a good story about a microfinance institute, everyone else will write the same story, change a little bit, but telling you how good the microfinance institute is without actually checking it. And we don't want to fall for that trap. So of the seven microfinance institutes or initiatives we've highlighted for further study, we're going to do our own bottom-up research. We're going to go through our financials by ourselves. We're going to talk to the CEO and their management team ourselves. And we want to draw our own conclusion. You know, and we may very well disagree with some of the most popular conclusions in famous books and famous case studies and so on. And that's fine because we can't rely on other people's opinion. Because if there's one thing I've learned from all the scandals that have taken place in business is that people are too afraid to say what they think, even when all the evidence points in that direction, because they don't want to be the odd man out. They don't want to look like someone who disagrees. I mean, there was this recent case about Somali ma'am, this lady from Vietnam, I think, or Cambodia. I think it was Cambodia, who allegedly had a life of being sold into a brothel and so on. And many people felt the story didn't make sense, but no one stood up and wrote about it. Even though every famous celebrity in the world, even Nicholas Kristof, the writer of the New York Times, who I have a lot of respect for, wrote about the story without fact-checking it. And that tells you how careful you have to be. And that's why we don't use other reference material. Uh, for the final analysis. We use it for the preliminary analysis, but for the final analysis, we'll do our own fact-checking because you can't rely on other people. People write what is acceptable and what wouldn't allow them to get caught out, and we're not going to do that. If we decide, if we do our own analysis and we decide that Grameen Bank in Bangladesh is actually a pretty much of a disaster, we'll say it, even though it disputes conventional wisdom as long as we have the data to back up what we are saying. So that's where we are at this point. We have started off very well. We are a little bit ahead of where we wanted to be. The team is now in New Mexico, probably eating poblano peppers and so on and having breakfast. But the point is they will finish their shadow studies of the um, development financial intermediaries. And remember, the DFIs are the privately held businesses in the United States who borrow money from Lab, which is a wholesale bank. And then the DFIs lend this money to immigrant entrepreneurs in the U.S. The team wants to do a couple of things. They want to understand how a DFI operates so we can model it. Because if Lab wants to enter the U.S. retail market, it's going to be doing it based on the fact that they think the DFIs are very successful and they think that they could do a better job. So we want to see if the DFIs are successful. And this is another example of us fact-checking things. Because the economics of the DFIs are so important, we are going to model it. In other situations where it may not have been so important, we may have chosen to simply collect some audited financial statements, but we don't trust the numbers. We also want to be able to manipulate the numbers, so we have to model it. So the team's going to go out there, count the number of people working, count the volume they're processing, look at the processes they undertake in a day so we can model it, look at the technology they use, the cost incurred. We're also going to go out and spend a day with the delinquency officer, loan officer, chasing up on delinquent loans to see the amount of resources deployed to that success rate, the problems they face, so we can understand the challenges of what would occur once we scale up the model. And we are now at the point whereby I think we have actually isolated the key issues quite well, and we are now going to put together what we think is the final structure of the study. So we spent the whole week vetting the structure, the key issues we've put together initially before we began the study. And I've decided that the plan for the first update with Guillermo, which will be next week Friday, we won't present to the CEO next week Friday, it's just a Guillermo. We are going to show him 
what we finalize to be the key issues we want to analyze and how we're going to structure the study. And once he approves that, we'll go ahead and actually begin. Um, you know, we've already began the study, but we'll continue with the part we've laid out. So, so far, we, we started off, you know, better than I could have possibly imagined. And I'm hoping that the team can maintain the momentum. Um, as always, if you have any comments and questions about the study, please feel free to write to me. Remember, this is not just about microfinance. This is about finance in the United States, and it's a pure strategy study. So all of the issues and topics and so on we're dealing with here will be relevant to any strategy study. As always, any questions, any comments, feel free to write to me.